0: on well lastly on the subject i was on in letter number two causing the subject to arise because of jack kevorkian insanity i disagree on after mallory and six months later encountering trouble with david spears i knew after his killing it was quote over for me to ever come clean who did this in the wise now it was just stay as long as time will allow me to with Ty for I loved her so much beyond with terms of understanding that I knew eventually our relationship would forever be over which I feared greatly quote so deeply in love End quote. man I cherished her so decided to just keep trucking doing what I have to do hustling to survive if more assholes i run into oh well i'm not gonna stop defending my abusive assaults or whatever else may come via this and the guy against me i've already got two deaths i had to do because of their stupidity starting up first i'll be had on this eventually there's no self-defense law so fuck it continue If I have to do this, like I said, oh well, it'll just keep others from their cruelty in life. And I know I'll die from it. So to kill more down the road, as I hook, I will only be the same as killing one. For no matter the number and the defense. Plus, lastly, it shouldn't matter who you are or your workplace is. Self-defense is self-defense. No one has a right to lay any physical abuse on anyone. I don't care if you're ugly as hell or what. Most other states in America have this law. I could also tell how much they knew I was innocent. When in Pasco, they stepped two DUI cases in the same cell with me who was supposed to be this vicious fucking crazy female serial killer. It was like their last goodbye to me to say, yeah, we fucked you over Royal, didn't we? And now we're rich as shit. Thanks, bitch. Too bad there wasn't a self-defense law. Never will be either, but their day is coming. See you soon. Love, Lee. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host Ashley. Tonight we go even deeper into the body count of one of America's most notorious serial killers, Aileen Wuornos. She claims that each life she took, she took out of self-defense. Each of her victims were only going to rape her in the end and she beat them all to the punch. Whether you believe Aileen's intentions were to protect herself or you believe that Aileen believed that that's all these men wanted from her, either way, in the end, Aileen would have kept on killing for however long she could until the law caught up with her. That much we know just from this week's letter, from the one and only killing two or a hundred was the same as killing one. In the end, it was over for her. She blamed the frame of mind of our country and the world on how she was treated for each and every year of her life. The world needed someone to make an example of and there was no one better to do it with but Aileen. In her eyes, everyone was out to get her. Warning. Warning. This episode contains graphic detail of murder, sexual assault, and adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If any of this is too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, my true crime nerds. I hope you all had a chance to catch up with this case's episodes. We have a little bit of housekeeping to get to tonight before we get started. Don't forget to show some love for TTCL by reviewing and recommending. If you're listening in on YouTube, hit that like button and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Season four is dwindling down with only one more case in the lineup for this season, But don't worry, the library and After Dark on Patreon will continue on through the summer. Don't forget that I always have something up my sleeve. And last summer we covered a briefcase with a teenage boy who murdered his own mother so gruesomely it was hard to understand where his mind was. So keep a lookout for that by following TTCL on social media. Enough of all of this. Let's get to what you all came here for. The true crime. Last week, we heard the tale of Aileen's first murder. She claims that Richard Mallory raped and sodomized her so brutally that the only way she knew to leave with her life was to kill him first. Yet the autopsy of Richard showed that his pants and belt were still up around his waist and his zipper was down. It's the only thing to indicate that any kind of sexual activity went on between the two. We know that the two pulled off to a secluded area in the woods, Is being put in a position where no one but Aileen and a man being the only two around, is that what sets her off and makes her fight until she wins? And is that the reason that Richard had to die that night in November? Let me introduce you to victim number two, David Andrew Spears. He was born July 20th, 1942 to Braxton and Lula Spears. He is one of four children, two older sisters, and one younger brother. In 1964, David married Ima, and during their 20-year marriage, the two had two sons and one daughter. In 1984, the couple divorced, but they were amicable. She still did for David what most wives do. She did his laundry. She supported him in the decisions. For all intents and purposes, the two were a husband and wife without living together and having that piece of paper that said these two are connected, you know. Ima was more of the type of woman who preferred to go to church. She liked a quiet lifestyle versus David who preferred to have a good time and could be known for his party-friendly personality. Ima had hoped that her divorcing David would curb that party lifestyle, but it didn't. On May 19, 1990, David called up his ex-wife early in the afternoon and told her that he would see her that evening. David lived inside of Sarasota, Florida and worked in Winter Garden. His ex-wife lived in Orlando, which from what I gather, Winter Garden is a sub-community around the greater Orlando area. Usually, when he told her that he would see her soon, that means he was going to hang up the phone and he was going to drive to her home. But this day, David decided something different. He picked Aileen up and decided to help her. She was picked up where where US-27 intersects with I-4. Lee told him that she needed to get to... Hamosa Springs which was Approximately 75 miles One direction out of his way That meant in total he would drive 150 miles plus Before he could continue To head on to Ima's So this added roughly Two plus hours To his driving time meaning He wasn't going to be seeing Ima Anytime soon He had decided to help Lee Considering the level of inconvenience that it was gonna cause him, it just baffles me to say the least. I mean, what did Lee say to him to get him to agree to just forget about his plans and get her to her destination? And whatever she said, I'm gonna leave it up to you and your imagination. And giving her past, I'm sure you can all come up with something colorful. I don't see her playing, you know, I don't know. I mean, like her life is the victim. So, yeah, I mean, she could play the victim and that's just, you know, pleading on his poor bleeding heart kind of thing. I I don't know. According to Lee, this is how David's death plays out. And remember, we want to take all of this with a grain of salt. We only have a third of the story. I'm constantly saying there's three parts to the story. One side, the other side, and what really happened. So, this is only a third of it. So, mm, I don't know how much weight it should carry, but I am going to tell you what Lee says about the murder. She says that she was with David from about 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. on May 19th. He had picked her up and agreed to get her to Homosa Springs. During their drive, the two drank and they talked about their lives. She learned about David's family and David learned that Lee didn't really have anybody. According to Lee, she never said anything about Ty in order to protect her. So in David's eyes, Lee truly didn't have anyone. Those alive had abandoned her and those that were there but not good for her, they were all dead. So everybody's gone. Well, the two pull off at US-19 and drive deep into the trees, and so far so that Lee can remember that David was concerned that his truck was going to get stuck in the wet earth. Once part, Lee says this happened. Knowing she didn't have anyone, he decided that he, was going, he wasn't going to pay her for the services these two had clearly already agreed upon. Lee says that David raped her and then beat her with a lead pipe. Full of cement. Now, David having a weapon of this magnitude on him is not completely out of the ordinary. He has a long career in construction work, so you could put it together that it just kind of got tossed in there absentmindedly one night, and she saw it when she climbed into the truck, and, mm, you know, I'm going to tell everybody this is how it happened. That's not, I mean, that's plausible, But for him to beat her to the degree that she describes, Lee would have been admitted to a hospital and not just for a night or two, but for weeks, if not months. Her injuries would have been more than a black eye or a few stitches. Lee's life would have been teetering on the edge of surviving or dying. Lee was never hospitalized for any extensive injuries following David's murder. With Lee, we only have that third of the story. So, do you think David could have raped her? Is it plausible? Yes. But I wouldn't guarantee it. If I don't believe how, you know, don't believe David could have raped her, how can I believe that Mallory did, right? You're all asking that because last week, I really truly felt like the story we got from Richard Mallory was probably one of the most truthful things that Lee has spoke about in her life. And I don't know why it is that story per se that I I attach to as being truth. And I'm not saying the entire thing is true. I I don't know. But did I believe that Mallory was capable of raping Lee? Yes, I did. Um, I think the idea of Mallory raping Lee is more likely in the possible cause of Lee losing control six more times with men she thought would rape her, but may have never actually considered it. Mallory, he had a history, a criminal history of raping a woman. He was also a man with a completely insatiable sex drive. Unless there was so much kink mixed in it all that it would make a porn star blush, he was not being satisfied, so could he have raped and sodomized Lee that night in november i I do believe that is more plausible because she did see Ty afterwards, and she did have a black eye and some scratches and stuff like that going on so yes, I'm going with um it's plausible. And maybe the beating her or the raping her repeatedly, whatever it was, all of that mixed together caused Lee's mind to lose control. And each time that she entered into the woods with a man who was going to pay her for sex, all she saw was the flashbacks of what happened with Mallory. And I believe this, given her history and the possible rapes, Lee had one of the worst cases of PTSD. I could imagine it would take it would it would take seeing some I don't know, but i I say that her suffrage of PTSD was one for the record books. And so her mind had to break in order to keep these bad things from happening. She decided, I need to fight back. And the only way she had found at this point to make it all stop, kill the men dead. So long story short, I don't think that David intended to rape Lee. I think it was just a stroke of fate that he happened to be at that intersection that Lee was at on that day. And uh, based off of what had happened to her prior, she snapped and killed him before he could even think of raping or killing her. It may have never crossed his mind, but for Lee, she thought it was there. She had seen this happen before. On Sunday, May 20th of 1990, David Spears' truck was found abandoned 10 miles west of Orange Springs, Florida, near CR 318 and I-75. A blonde hair was found inside of the truck on the steering wheel, and there was a ripped Trojan condom packet on the floorboard of this vehicle as well. The driver's seat was pulled so far so it was pulled so far forward that a man of David's statue would have not been able to sit comfortably behind the wheel without it impeding his driving in any way. That means that someone other than David drove the vehicle following his disappearance. On June first, 1990, David's body was found in on Fling Lane, somewhere that people were known to illegally dump trash. The male would run from that secluded spot to the nearest payphone and call in the police. The police were unable to determine the sex or age of the body based off what they were looking at at the crime scene. David laid on his back with his legs apart and arms outreached. Around the body was cans of Bush and Budweiser beer, a used Trojan condom, and a torn black packet. Missing was his money from his paycheck that he had got that day before he picked up Lee and money he had set aside to give to his daughter on her graduation on May 19th of 1990. This adds to the dumbfounding of Why did David choose to drive out of his way with such a great distance and such a, you know, time consuming thing? Because he wasn't just heading to see Ima, they were going to watch their daughter graduate. So why, why did David choose to pick up Lee and take her so far out of the way? In the end, Lee cleared about $600 from David, one of the bigger payouts to come from the murders she commits. During the autopsy of David, there were six 22 caliber bullets removed from his remains. They used dental impressions to help identify him. Those who knew David couldn't believe that he would do what Lee claimed that he had done. He wouldn't hurt a fly, is what they would say. Lee claimed that his murder was strictly due to self-defense. As a matter of fact, this is what she had to say from the book Monster. Quote, we are getting nude and everything, and we're screwing around and all that stuff, getting drunk and everything. And um, then he, he wanted to go into the back of the truck. And when I got back there, he started getting vicious with me. And I jumped out of the truck. And he jumped out of the truck, ran to the to the car, I mean to the door, opened the door, grabbed my bag, grabbed the gun out, and I shot him quick as possible. I shot him at the tailgate of the truck, and then he ran around to the driver's side trying to get in the truck towards me, which was weird, towards men. And I just ran into the truck toward him and I thought, What the hell think you're doing, dude? You know. You know, I I'm going to kill you because you were trying to do whatever you could with me. And I shot him through through the door and then he was kind of went back and I went right through the driver's side and shot him again and he fell back. And that's all I remember on that one. This was Aileen looking back on the murder of David Andrew Spears, who was 47 years old at the time of his death. Let me introduce you to victim number three, Charles Edmund Karskaskadon. I may be saying that wrong. Charles or Chuck, to those who knew him, was born November 12, 1949, to Charles and Florence Karskaskadon. More of his early life isn't really known. We do know that Chuck was engaged to a woman named Peggy Hood, and the two lived with Peggy's in-laws for about a 30-day period. Chuck had a job welding dump trucks, and he was preparing to marry Peggy, and they were going to start their life together. But then Cold Feet gets the best of Peggy, and she told Chuck that she didn't want to marry him anymore. And this is devastating news And it led Chuck to quit his job And move to his mother's in Boonville, Missouri There he obtained a job And then, you know, a month later Peggy's cold feet is gone and well, Not even a month, I think it was like a week, really She decides, you know, I, I, I do love Chuck I do want to be with him And according to Peggy's sister-in-law, Peggy loved Chuck and that was not the issue when she called off the two's engagement. She needed time to see that this was truly what she was wanting out of life. On June third, 1990, Chuck was driving down the Dixie Highway. The Dixie Highway is a two-lane road that runs from Michigan to Miami. Chuck was on his way to pick up Peggy and he was going to take her back to Missouri and there they would be able to start fresh. Well, Lee was thumbing it along Dixie Highway. And according to the book Monster, it's likely that Lee was thumbing it due on June third, because she had dumped David's truck and she needed a ride back to wherever Ty was, wherever, you know, they were staying or whatever. And Chuck was just in the wrong place at the wrong time for his very caring heart. Many say that it wasn't unusual for Chuck to say, you know, he stopped and helped someone change a tire or fill up their tank or pick someone up and gave him a lift, something like that. Lee falls into that category. She needs a ride and he's too caring to just pass her by. Lee and Chuck apparently get to talking and they decide they're going to cha- exchange services for money, right? That you have sex and then Lee pulls out her weapon and she fires no less than 7 shots into Chuck's chest before she reloads the gun and puts two more into his dead body. All of this in an act of self-defense. Her reason for claiming self-defense? She says he had a 45 handgun that he owned and it was laid out on the hood of the car. There was no violence, there was no torturous rape or sexual encounter. It was a handgun laid down on the hood of the car. And that was probably more so Chuck could, you know, protect the, them while he gets what he paid for kind of thing. I I don't know. I don't... Seeing what I saw, which was very little because some of these families just aren't willing to talk about their husbands or their boyfriends or their sons dying because... They were murdered by a sex worker and they don't want to admit that they would enjoy something like that. So little is known, but from what I could find about Chuck, he was a very nice person. He was very giving. I can't see him thinking he could take from Aileen sex. I don't see him being a human being capable of raping. But again, it's based off of very little that is coming out about his background. Lee would continue to argue self-defense in Chuck's murder until she just couldn't hold the story together anymore. And by that point, evidence is pointing to something else happening between her and Chuck. So she changes her story to, I killed him for the money he had. And she murdered Chuck in cold blood while committing another felony robbery, which constitutes capital murder in the state of Florida. If her fate wasn't sealed with Mallory and Spears, it definitely was now. Lee says, quote, "That guy, huh? The drug dealer. He had20 dollars. He wasn't going to give me any more money. The one with the 45 on top of the hood, he crawled in the back seat and I crawled in the back seat and he said, "You fucking bitch," and all that stuff. and I thought, "You fucking bastard." I shot him in the back seat. And then I got out and kept shooting. I shot him more than over nine times because I was pissed when I found the forty-five on top of the car. That is what Aileen has to say about the murder of Chuck. She took a son. She took a future husband from this world, claiming he was a drug dealer with no more than $20 on him. This part, how much was in his wallet is more believable than him being some down on his luck. crapshoot drug dealer. I believe that inside of Lee's head, conversations went extremely difficult, different than what the other per- person is interpreting the very same conversation. The person talking to Lee could be talking about how the sky looked more orange than it looked blue today when the sun set. And she would take that as you calling her some racist or you know homophobic or whatever. She would literally turn that into some form of you of you attacking her. And it's so baffling because I I've read y'all different snippets I've read you letters for the last three weeks her grammar the way she speaks and she writes as she speaks I guarantee it she the words she would have said out of her mouth she is writing down on the piece of paper or she's saying them as she writes because it makes no absolute fucking sense (laughs) it irritates me and it's so hard to keep that and read that because She jumps from one thought to another so fast, you're not really sure where the hell you got left behind, okay? That is the way her mind works. And these men, she remembers them as being these villains, these horrible, awful people, what everybody says about, you know, them and their personality, she says the complete opposite. The only, Like I said, the only one I think could uh, possibly be true is the Mallory one. But David Spears, he, he, he wasn't going to rape her. Charles, Chuck... He wasn't going to rape her. As a matter of fact, I'm very surprised that she was able to convince Chuck to pay for any kind of sexual services considering the fact he was literally on the way to go pick up his fiance. I don't think um, him picking up a hooker along the way would have went well as far as that conversation with his fiance all the way back to Missouri, four freaking states away. So, you know, did they have sex? I don't know. I don't know. I just, it's so hard to keep up with her. And just, it can be frustrating at times. All right, let me introduce you to our third and final victim for tonight's episode, Peter Abraham Sims. He was 65 years old, a retired merchant marine, who in the past 10 years or so had found faith in God and he was using retirement to spread the word of God and was on his way to visit his mother in West Milford, New Jersey. Then he maybe was out to go see one of his sons in Arkansas before joining other members of his missionary group in Fort Payne, Alabama. He never made it to those destinations and unfortunately Peterson's remains have never been found even after Lee agreed and Went through with helping aid the police to where she remembered Sims being. He's not been found. Peter was last seen leaving his home on Beverly Road in Jupiter, Florida on June 7th, 1990. He was loading in his luggage and a box of Bibles into his 1988 silver gray colored Pontiac Sunbird. The sunburn would later be recovered from where Lee and Ty crash it on July 4th of 1990 in Orange Springs. A homeowner, Rhonda, was sitting out on her porch when the sound of screeching tires in the distance where so many other people had wrecked before. There's a really sharp curve and people always take it way too fast and they end up crashing. So it's not uncommon for them to hear this noise and she hears it. And she thinks, you know, there it is, another wreck. This time, Ty and Lee stepped from the car where it came to rest in a bush across the street from Ronda's home. The two women, a dark-haired one and a blonde one, threw cans of beer from the car and both were yelling seemingly at one another. The blonde telling the dark-haired one, quote, I told you not to go so fast, end quote. And she peppered the rest of that with what she had to say was some colorful language, indicative to some of the language used in Lee's letters, hence why this series has had far more foul language than what you're used to. And I must admit, it has been interesting to cover a case where I have so much from the killer, but it's also very damning. I don't cut my shows for anything. You want to hear it, I'm going to tell you it. And that includes sometimes reiterating language that I may not necessarily be using. But with Glee and this research, it offered an abnormal look on the inside of not just her reasons of why she was taking these lives from this world like she was, but to bring them in to give us and let me be clear, not necessarily is the stories or information coming from her, the whole truth, It is a window to piecing together what actually happened. I love that she wrote so freely to her friend Dawn and she worked close with Christopher to release Monster where others tend to bear down on the information that they know. Some harbor it. Some serial killers, they hold on to it. It's the only way they can go back, revisit, relive some of the most satisfying moments in their lives. And we may not understand fully why something so heinous gives someone such a great pleasure, but that's what most of us are drawn to true crime for in the first place. To understand what makes them different on that level. In this case, and I know I say this more and more, but this case has offered such a different way of researching true crime for me. I wish that all of those that are labeled prolific had left so much insight behind. The only one that I could possibly say tops Aileen is Ted Bundy. And wouldn't you know it, they were both in custody of the Florida Department of Criminal Justice. Maybe there's more to Florida's water than what they let on. <laughs> I don't know. Um, let me get back to Peter. Peter, he... Would have to travel based off what I know and from the maps that I've been looking at. He would have to go up the Florida Turnpike to about the center of Florida where he would join into I 75, and that's up near Wildwood. All of that area was Lee's hunting ground. After Lee's arrest, she admitted to being very drunk when she encountered Peter and that she vaguely remembers it being along I 75 in Marion County where the two met she said that they may have crossed the state line into georgia or south carolina the two had apparently talked about terms of exchanging sex for money and lee says that peter became very threatening during their sexual encounter in the woods so she shot him period into the freaking thought so maybe peter's body is hidden somewhere in the thick forest of georgia or maybe in the thick salt or freshwater marshlands in South Carolina. Maybe wildlife got him, ensuring that his remains would never be found. Thanks to the wreck on July 4th, 1990, the Florida State Police released a bolo for Peter Sims. Missing adult, foul play suspected, victims of white male, Peter Sims, date of birth 5-21-25, standing 5'7", 160 pounds with gray hair and brown eyes. Sims was last seen at his residence at 115 West Beverly Road in Jupiter, Florida, on 6-7 of 90, when he left to visit relatives in Arkansas and New Jersey. Sims never arrived at either destination and was reported missing on June 22nd of 1990, 12 days prior to his wrecked car being found in Orange Spring. The victim's vehicle was found abandoned in Marion County, Florida, Blood was found on both seats and the tag had been removed. Two white females who appeared to be lesbians were seen exiting the vehicle and leaving southbound on foot. Subject number one is a white female 25 years to 30 years old, stands 5 foot 8, 130 pounds, blonde hair, unknown eye color, wearing blue jeans with some type of chain hanging from the front belt loop she wore a white t-shirt with her sleeves rolled up to the shoulder. Subject number two is a white female, early 20s, 5'4", 5'6", very overweight and masculine looking with dark red hair, wearing a gray shirt and red shorts. All personal belongings of the victim are missing from the vehicle and no credit card or bank transactions have been made since the victim left his home. Victim is a devout Christian and a family man and has no history of mental instability. Aylins remembers the murder as so. Quote, I think the next one's the one, he was a Christian guy or something. I I don't know, he was a Christian guy. He was nude. This is the one in Georgia, I think. And he had, he, ha- he was, he took a sleeping bag Took it out in the woods And when we got nude I had taken my bag with me That time because I said Well if we're going to go out in the woods I'm not going to give him an opportunity To rape me And that's the time this guy Gave me a problem And so I whipped out my gun And I said you know I, I don't, I don't want to shoot you He said He didn't say anything he just looked at me and he said, you fucking bitch. And I said, no, you were going to rape me because he was getting physical with me again. And I knew, and he, he was, and he said, fuck you bitch. And started to come at me and he was, you know, trying to get the gun from me and stuff. We were struggling on that one. And, uh, he tried to get the gun from me and stuff and the gun and everything else, and a couple of bullets shot up in the air, and I finally, I ripped it away, and I had the gun in my left hand, and I put it back in my right hand, and I shot him immediately, and I'm positive the only one in Georgia is the missionary guy. I remember the missionary guy. I shot him once. With each and every excerpt that I read to you, all plays out the same. Only she killed Peter Sims for his money in his car, and not because she was he was going to rape her. It's not uncommon to find out like a deacon in your church was sleeping around on his wife or a minister from the church around the corner was paying for sex workers for things he you know, couldn't muster up the courage to ask his spouse for. We see things like this in every community. So I will not sit here and say that we and Peter didn't come to terms on exchange of sexual activities. Sims laid out a blanket for the two. He cared to make it comfortable. Maybe he called her a bench once or twice. Maybe he called her crazy. Hell, she was by every definition of the word. And I don't think for one second that Lee would have enjoyed me or my coverage of this case. Because I'm going to be flat out on it. She'd be pissed. I'd be called everything under the sun except for my given name. She would not like this. She would not like this at all. And I'm certain of that because that's how Lee was. She would read this all as an attack to her, attack to her excuse, attack to whatever. She would not view this as a simple media coverage because, in the end, I mean, it's kind of me covering more than what the media deemed appropriate. I'm just going to give you the whole damn story. You know how I play. So, because I'm saying that, yeah, maybe Sims wanted sex from her, but she knew from the moment she climbed into his car, he may have had only one intention at some point of just sleeping with her, but Lee knew from the moment she opened the car door, climbed inside, shut the door, and took off down the road with him, she was going to shoot him, and she was going to take his money, and she was going to take his car. And she rode with some of these people for so long because she needed to make it either look like she was doing things they talked about or she really enjoyed the free ride and someone to talk to. That is one thing Lee remembers fondly about her time traveling from Michigan to Florida is the amount of people that she got to meet and the interesting stories and conversations that she would have with these people. So maybe... We enjoyed that part of the drive. Maybe that was what kept things going for her and what kept drawing her in in the beginning. Because by the time we get to the back half of her victim list, she don't care about all of that. She's, you know, park in the closest woods. I'm going to take you out and take your money. That's where she ends up. But in the beginning, it could have simply been you know, if I get in the car, I'm going to go up the road. I'll be able to come around back because I'm always getting picked up. I'll talk to him. And uh, then somewhere along the line, she decides, you know, if I bring up sex and they accept the offer, I'm going to kill them. If I bring up sex and they say, you know, thanks, but no thanks, then no, she's going to attain her sanity a little bit. I know somewhere that I did read that it depended on what they asked for her when the conversation of sex was brought up. And Aileen admits that she would bring it up almost exclusively when she's talking about her victims. She would bring up exchanging sex for money. So I do believe it It was, I just can't remember where I saw it, but I do remember seeing That if they accepted Aileen's offer, they were going to die. Because that's all men wanted to use her for was sex. That's all she was good for. You know, I don't know. The other thing is, they supplied her with alcohol. This girl was an alcoholic in every definition of the word. As a matter of fact, in the beginning of Dear Dawn, she kind of talks about some of her struggles with withdrawal coming off of alcohol cold turkey, and with Aileen drinking at such an early age, she could have developed more um, riskier side effects when coming off of alcohol cold turkey. Some of the DTs could have really gotten bad. Um, You know, I know a lot of us have seen what it's like to detox off of heroin thanks to the amount of TV shows that we have out there today. But what you don't see very frequently is. Is a longtime drinker trying to. Completely go cold turkey with alcohol. And Aileen was at that point. That by the time she was arrested. You know. She had some pretty vicious side effects. But as long as she was. Thumbing it up and down the highway. And they're willing to talk to her. And willing to supply her with her favorite beer. It was a free ride, and she's going to get money out of it in the end, and possibly a car. I don't know. Depends on what the mood strikes her, right? I think that Sims had an unfortunate, wrong time, wrong place kind of thing when these two cross paths. I, I don't think she ever thought for one second that she was actually going to do her job as a sex worker. From the moment that she picked him up. She never had to let another man crawl on top of her in her highs to get his rocks off. And possibly have a chance to assault her in the process. Lee was going to kill each and every one of them. And rob them blind until either one, they killed her. One of the men fought back and killed her. Or two, until the cops caught up with her. And by this time, we're four victims in. And she was no longer acting in self-defense. She was a callous, cold-blooded killer. And she was getting revenge on men for everything that every man before them had done to her, whether they were like those men or not. Although Aileen claims to have shot and killed Peter Sims, she never was tried for his murder. Partly because there were three different states that could have, he could have died in. And without a body to say for sure which state he died in, it was really hard for them to bring justice for Peter. It just simply wasn't in the cards with this victim. Aileen. While Aileen is running up and down I-75, killing men... The police departments in Belusa County, Citrus County, Pasco County, they're working separately to find the same person because she killed all of their victims. Their killer, she has been in the system. She served time in their justice, in their Department of Justice facilities. Her prints were in the database, but it wouldn't be until later when pawn shop records attached to some of these victims' belongings showed a very clear print of the woman who sold the stolen goods. What was an investigation working separately in four different counties inside of the state of Florida? It would soon become one manhunt for the same killer responsible in all four of these murders. If only investigators were able to work together sooner, the lives of three more men would have been saved and Florida's damsel of death was far from being done and the police were going to have to come together to stop her. Aileen Mornos was foul-mouthed and alcohol-fueled, and the rage that was a small ember inside of her from the first time she was raped was now a burning out of control blaze. Men who never intended to do more than what they were paying for paid the price for what men before them had done. Lee thought that sex was the easiest way to make money until she killed Richard Mallory. Then a big payday came from her gunning down David Spears. But neither loot lasted long, and before you know it, Lee was killing for the sole purpose of robbing these men. A dead man tells no tales, nor fights back. She was at a disadvantage of robbing them the good old-fashioned way, leaving them with a dark moment in their past. But most importantly, they would leave with their life. Lee stood five foot eight on a good day and that's inches shy of the men she killed but with her weighing in no more than a buck thirty this is where she really lacked in statute to even the playing field but a twenty-two pistol made up for what she lacked in what drew David Spears in agreeing to drive a woman he's never met more than 150 miles there and back out of his way on the day His daughter was set to walk the stage and accept her high school diploma. Had Chuck been a tad bit more shrewd, would he have passed the thumbing Lee on the highway without so much as a glance in the rearview mirror? Maybe if Peter would have left his house five minutes later, he would have drove to New Jersey and to Arkansas, staying on course for his travel plans. What if Aileen had had one less bad experience with men? Maybe her seven victims could have been alive far longer. We can question asking what if until we are blue in the face. But none of it makes this case end any differently in the end. Because it's all hypothetical. Is it nature or is it nurture? Nurture. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we take an even closer look into one of America's most prolific serial killers and most prolific woman serial killer to date. This week's recommendation is Dead Ends by Michael Reynolds. and gives a great insight into the investigation, the trial, and execution of Aileen Warnos. Reynolds broke the story as a Reuters correspondent in Florida, covering the trial and giving him firsthand knowledge of not only the case, but the face behind it. It's not one of the higher rated books, but it is one I wanted to look at, especially with him covering her case from the moment it broke in Florida. It gives me more of an insight into one of the most interesting mental faculties I've ever came across. Join me next week as we wrap up our coverage of Miss American Serial Killer Aileen Wuornos. Season 4 came and went in a hurry, and we only have one more case to cover before summer break gets here. As always, I leave you with one last line. Like crying wolf, if you keep looking for sympathy as a justification for your actions, you will someday be left standing alone when you really need help. Much love, the True Crime Librarian.